Hello and welcome to this month's Bone and Joint 360 podcast. I'm Tim Coughlin and I'm joined today by Ian Moppet, who's Professor of Anesthesia and Perioperative Medicine at the University of Nottingham. So he's kindly joined us today to discuss uh, the paper Reversal of Direct Oral Anticoagulants in Adult Hip Fracture Patients, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, which is available now in the November 21 issue of Injury. So Ian, I thought this was a, a really interesting study looking at the problem of direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs, which those of us who frequently treat hip fracture patients often face, particularly in terms of the delay they often cause in getting the patient to theatre. So how big do you think the problem is of DOACs in the hip fracture population? Is this affecting a lot of patients? Yeah, it's affecting quite a few. The, the data that we have are um, a bit scanty. Overall, we think a rough estimate is around 10% of people with hip fracture are on an anticoagulant of some sort. In the UK, that is still predominantly warfarin. But if you go across the world, for instance, to Australia, they they seem to have moved much more towards DOACs. So some figures reckon at the moment around 2% of patients with with a hip fracture are on a DOAC. And that's gut feelings that's likely to increase, obviously, as primary care use DOACs more often. So even at the moment, it's quite a lot. It's going to become more, I think. Okay, that's interesting. And obviously, our issue with DOACs is their anticoagulant effect from a surgical perspective. So how long, roughly speaking, and I appreciate it may be different, do DOACs tend to last in terms of their anticoagulant effect after that? It's a slightly trickier question than it might appear. The half-life of most of these drugs, so um, things like um, rivaroxaban and the pixaban are around 12 hours. It's a little bit longer for um, dabigatran, but bear in mind that's the half-life. So the, the, the time to sort of... to to lose most of the anticoagulant activity is for most of these drugs it's around 24 hours but that does have there are some caveats to that essentially largely around renal function and also around the fact that a lot of the studies are done on essentially healthier people not older people with with hip fractures and the hip that that's had so in terms of sort of a, a pragmatic view about 24 hours if you go into the elective situation then as i'm sure lots of the listeners will know the the elective guidance is basically to, to get rid of that effect completely so that's the the guidance for for, for operating the, the 48 hour 72 hour mark but that's a different process for perhaps for hip fractures yeah that's interesting because obviously we are keen to get hip fractures to theater quickly so are there any options uh, for reversing the action of DOACs that we commonly use at the moment essentially there's in theory, there are three options, which is what we looked at in the paper. There's waiting. That is one, one option. That's just what we refer to as, as time. There's, there's option to use things like some of the, the, the clotting products or, or PCCs, the prothrombin complex concentrates. And there are a couple of specific antidotes, and I'm going to struggle here. I always get these pronounced wrong. So there's Idarusimab close anyway it's for dabigastran and there's andexanax alpha for um rivaroxan and apixaban but not widely used and not recommended which we might come on to in a minute so there are some antidotes but basically it's essentially it's weight or not weight that's the common decision okay now just taking a step back from the doax for a second i was interested to see that you've used the concept of a network meta-analysis in this paper, and that wasn't something I was particularly familiar with. Could you explain a little bit about what type of meta-analysis uh, this is before we go on to talk about the results? 
So obviously it falls within within the whole the framework of measure analysis. So there's a whole concept of, of, of making sure the studies are reasonable and so forth. But just coming to the network bit, essentially, if you can visualize a triangle, if we've got most studies um, are done in, in head-to-head studies, that A versus B studies. So a trial, of, you know, an orthopedic trial of, of implant A versus implant B, we might have some data on that. We might also then have another trial of implant B versus implant C, which is another direct head-to-head comparison. But the question you might be interested in is, well, how does implant A compare to implant C when there's no direct comparison? So we have an indirect comparison. And that's what the, that's where network, network measure analysis comes in. It's basically saying, it, with all the caveats of measure analysis and making sure the groups are, are similar and they're consistent, even if we haven't got a direct comparison between, between one group and another, can we sort of essentially go around the triangle, or sometimes it's more complex than just a triangle, to try and, to try and recreate that, that, that comparison, but just doing it indirectly. So that's where that's essentially what, it, what it's doing. Oh, very interesting. Now, for me, one of the headline findings in this study was that there was a a quite significant fall in time to theatre from about 46 to 25 hours in the non-time reversed group. And this seems like a strong reason not to wait for the DOAX to wear off. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd certainly be in that camp. And that's um, what we found was that within the limitations of the data, and the data aren't, aren't great, these aren't randomised controlled trials. But within the limitations of the data, we couldn't find any evidence of, of harm from from going to going to theatre more quickly or or benefit from going to theatre more quickly. So we can't say conclusively it's a better strategy or a worse strategy. However, if you look in the wider context, lots of observational studies, the, the suggestion is that getting to theatre more quickly is associated with, with better outcomes for patients. Now clearly you have to unpick why people get delayed to theatre, but the general feeling is that if it's a purely organizational delay of getting to theatre, it's associated with worse outcomes for patients. The and you know when we talk we talk about those outcomes, some evidence suggesting that delirium rates are reduced by getting to theatre. Length of stay, as you mentioned, probably goes down with, with getting to theatre. And the fundamentally, we just take a humanitarian view. We think about why are we p- fixing people's hip, hip fractures in the first place? There are painful, distressing injuries. So getting people fixed on that road to recovery, which you know you and I both know from our clinical practice that. We're doing our bit as anaesthetists and surgeons to let the rest of the team get these these people up and about. And anything we can do to delay, to, to reduce that delay, I think it's going to be a good thing. So there's no evidence to suggest that waiting makes things better. And the system generally works well. We try and get people through that as, as promptly and as efficiently as possible. Did you not think it was reasonable to assume that there is at least some additional benefit with the, the fall in uh, length of stay? Because it seems to fall from a median of six to four days. And although I appreciate the data is difficult, that's, that does seem like quite a striking finding. Yeah, I think we have to take that in the context of, of small studies. And obviously, that is at least some of that is deliberate is directly built in. To take a simplistic view of it, the length of stay of someone with a, an operation is largely determined by the length of stay after their operation. So we just if we're waiting for them to go to theatre, we're just delaying when they go home. There may be other stuff as well in terms of actually lengthening their recovery time. So it's small, you know, small studies suggesting that, but that's the evidence that we have. And I say, if we take a purely humanitarian point of view, or if we take a resource point, resource resourcing view of it, then for vast majority of people, going home sooner is going to be better. Yeah. Um, so without evidence of harm from delaying, it's it's hard to say delay. And it's interesting. One of the things that I suspect people are always very 
conscious about it, bleeding complications. And you mentioned no harm, but you specifically found that there was no evidence of increased bleeding complications or, or otherwise. The, again, I, you know, I, I would caveat everything with, with, with caution around the quality of the data that are there and, the, and, we, and also on the fact that we know that measured blood loss in theatre is, is not a great metric of, of blood loss. But within the things that were looked at, transfusion rates didn't seem to be different. So the worry which was there when the diets came out, first of all, was that there was some uncontrolled bleeding which is un- completely unmanageable in theatre. And so far, the evidence doesn't seem to say that that is, that that is borne out. So the, those complications seem to be, those metrics appear to be much the same between, between the groups. I think that seems quite reassuring. I mean, I think certainly from the, the perspective of the patient and the, the surgery, watch and wait doesn't seem to be the way to go. But um, are there not some anaesthetic reasons why DOACs are of concern, particularly thinking around anaesthetic techniques? Because uh, you know, I'm sure that's been quoted before as a reason to delay things. So, Tim, you're straying into sort of anaesthetic controversy here. So I'm going to have to be careful what I say before I put my foot in it. But so, and I wonder whether you're, you're hinting at the, um, there's a couple of large trials which have just come out um, uh, looking at general anaesthesia versus spinal anaesthesia. And I'm going to encourage your listeners to go to go and look at those and talk to the anaesthetic colleagues about them. But obviously the, the, the worry we have with anticoagulated patients of any sort is that if we, we have two worries as anaesthetists. One is, are you, the surgeon, going to cause blood loss, which is unhelpful for them? And then there's the small but and a largely unquantified but very small risk of vertebral canal hematoma from us delivering spinal anesthesia. And that is the, that's one of the worries around, around the DOAX. And that's where sort of the pragmatic recommendations, uh, which are around, so for instance, the, um, if we really wanted to go and look at the, the association of these guidance on hip fractures, there's some supplementary information there about essentially a, a pragmatic view of saying, broadly speaking, wait 24 hours. And generally, if there isn't a good reason to give a spinal, general anaesthetic is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. No evidence at the moment that it's that it's a worse outcome. Colleagues might criticise me for saying that, but that's the evidence as I interpret it at the moment. So, and then the issue is around, I say, making sure that the, the surgery itself doesn't make people bleed more. But I think the evidence so far is that, that they don't. If it's safe for surgery, it's probably safe for anaesthesia. No, that's uh, that's very interesting. And actually, I think there was a large randomised control trial in New England Journal of Medicine late last year, which was one of the ones I think you're alluding to that was looking at spinal versus general anaesthesia. So, Ian, do you think we should consider changing our practice now or do you think it is changing and it's just changing slowly or do you think we need some more evidence before we make any decisions as to what we should do? I suppose that the question of whether we whether we should be changing our practice is difficult because obviously I can describe what what we what you and I currently do where we are, which I say is that pragmatic approach of by and large for, for surgery at 24 hours, don't delay them beyond that. We, like most units, rarely get people to visit before that time anyway. So that's not really making, you know, we're not likely to suddenly change our practice. I know other units are more cautious. Is there going to be a large randomised controlled trial of, of waiting versus getting on? I don't think so. Is there ever going to be a trial of either of the direct reversal agents in this population? I don't think there will be, partly because there's never going to be an indication for this isn't a patient who is bleeding that needs their um, anticoagulation reversed. This is a patient where they might bleed when we get to them. So I think a lot of places have just taken a pragmatic view based on the evidence that's, that's out there that around 24 hours seems a sensible approach. But as a clinician, I would very much, very strongly advocate that that is a, is a unit-wide decision. So a unit has a consistent approach and a consistent policy 
on who gets blood, you know, what blood tests are done and when they're done. And that the hematologists are involved with that conversation in that conversation. So you've got the geriatricians, the hematologists all involved in drawing up a, an agreed agreed view rather than I think what's the least helpful thing is is patient by patient decision making because it becomes inconsistent. Uh, and of course, there will always be times when a particular patient should be delayed for a particular reason. And we should you know, we shouldn't be hidebound by those by those decisions. But I think most people have moved sort of broadly to sort of 24 hours. But I say make a considered decision. Don't base it on me and you sat in our podcast. Professor Moppet, thank you very much. That was really interesting. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Tim.